back before I turn into an urban legend. (laughs) (laughs) An urban legend in your own mind. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 210 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Saran Yitbarak. Hey, everybody. Avdi Grimm. Hello. Uh, Coraline Ada Emke. Hi. Sorry about that hesitation. I got confused because I saw David Brady's picture on the, the call. Hi. Gasp. This is Dave Brady. I'm away from the podcast right now, but if you'll leave your name, IP address, and <laughs> podcatcher version, I'll get back to you later in the show. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Quick reminder, we are now inside of a month away from Ruby Remote Conf, so... If you want to go to a conference where you don't actually have to go to the conference, you can just watch it on your computer or whatever, then go to rubyremoteconf.com and sign up. Uh, This week we have a special guest, and that is Jeremy Evans. Hello, everybody. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Well, I'm uh, probably best known as the maintainer of SQL, the Ruby database library, and I was uh, recently um, awarded the Ruby Hero Award at RailsConf uh, about a month ago. Yeah, they give you a nice trophy for that, don't they? It is a very nice trophy. I must say, it's very nice. Do you do you have it on your desk at work where people can yeah, come I, in and I, go, "What's that?" Exactly. I have it actually right next to my diploma at work, so it looks down on everyone that comes into my my cubicle. <laughs> nice. If I had a trophy related to programming, I think I'd put it on a necklace and wear it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, you would look like uh, the what's his name? Got the big clock. That's yeah, how big the trophy is. <laughs> it is gigantic. Plate. It looks a little sharp, too. I think it might be dangerous. Yeah, I, I would not recommend that. I mean, if I'm a programmer with an award, I think I'm dangerous. So it just fits. I think I'm going to build a 3D printer and print my own trophy. There you go. And sell them. New revenue stream. There we go. There go. You want to be a Ruby hero, too? Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, 
we brought you on today to talk about rota and routing trees. Jeremy, you want to kind of give us an overview of what those two topics are and how they relate? Sure. Um, rota basically is a routing tree web framework. So in other words, it's a toolkit for building web frameworks that route web requests using a tree. So Rota's core is basically just the router. But Rota uses a plugin system that is similar to SQL's plugin system, where all the additional features are contained as separate plugin modules. So when you are building your app using Rota, you basically pick only the plugins that you need and you don't load the other plugins. And by choosing which plugins you specifically need, you're basically creating a web framework custom tailored to your application. So Rota's history can be traced back to RUM, which was a request router written by Christian Nikurgin, the author of Rack, back in 2009. And the fundamental difference between RUM and other approaches to routing was that RUM handles routing at an instance level. So instead of passing a request to a router and having the router just point you to the request handler, in RUM, the router is integrated with the request handler and... As you are routing a request, you can also be handling the request. And the main advantage to integrating routing with request handling is that in most applications, the URL structure somewhat reflects the application structure. So as soon as certain branches in the routing tree are taken, you can immediately start handling the request before you've even finished routing the request. And this allows you to easily share behavior for all routes under a given branch of the tree. It provides a natural way to dry up your code without literaling it with before filters, and it reduces the amount of indirection when you're routing, which in addition to being faster, also makes the resulting code easier to read and understand. So basically, you can scope instance variables and have their logic there for an entire branch of the tree, of the routing tree? Yes, that's, that's one of the advantages to it. I love that it's a toolkit for a framework. How did you write this thing without just like quoting exhibit the entire time? <laughs> like, yo, dog, I heard you like frameworks. So we got you a framework for your framework so that you can route while you route. Well, originally, it wasn't designed to be like a toolkit. Um, it was basically just its own framework. Some of the history, I mean, it originally came back from RUM, but in between, there was this web framework called Cuba, which I think you guys had uh, the author of Cuba, Michael Martin, Michelle Martins, on um, uh, earlier, yep, I think, did. back in November. And Rota basically was forked from Cuba basically due to. Uh, philosophical differences between his approach to writing a web framework and the way I wanted to go. I basically was proposing patches to Cuba that he did not want to take. So I just basically did the open source way. If you don't like it, you fork. And that's what I did. So after I had forked, originally it was just going to be a web framework. And I thought, well, depending on what plugins you, you load with this, it's really going to result in a very different framework. I mean, you can have a framework that looks significantly different depending on which plugins you load. So that's why I call it a framework toolkit. It's basically, depending on which plugins you load, you're basically building your own custom framework. What are some of those plugins you're talking about? For example, if you want a Sinatra-like uh, API where you basically just define routes sort of like in a list, you can do that. There's a plugin, uh, class-level routing, where you can have a list of like the top-level routes and inside those, then you can also branch. So you can make it so it acts just like a nested Sinatra. And there are plenty of plugins that change how routing occurs, like how you treat ending slashes. So, like, do you want to have routes that are always canonical? So, like, if your route ends in a slash, it's treated differently than a route that does not end in a slash. The default in Rota is that they're treated differently, so all routes are canonical. 
But if you want to treat those two routes the same, there's a plugin like Empty Path or something like that that allows you to have that specific behavior. There's also plugins for like rendering. Like by default, Router is just a router. There's no plugin for like rendering templates. Plenty of people use Rota as like an API, so they don't need routing of templates. I mean, rendering of templates. They just need to have quick like JSON API requests. So there's also a JSON API plugin that makes writing JSON APIs very simple. You basically just can just return uh, either a hash or an array from your route, and it will be automatically converted to JSON implicitly for you, which makes writing JSON APIs really nice. There's also plugins for like asset handling, and there's plugins for template streaming, like Action Controller Live, if you use that in Rails. There's a plugin that basically does the same thing in, uh, in Rota. And there's a lot of plugins for things that you would sort of expect in other frameworks, because Rota is so small, the core is so small, a lot of things that other frameworks provide are added as plugins, so that if you need them, you can load them. But if you don't need them, you don't load them, and you don't pay the cost in memory and performance for using them. So uh, we've had um, some folks on in the past to talk about Sinatra and also Padrino, which is a collection of basically plugins to plug into Sinatra. How would you contrast uh, your approach with that, with the Sinatra Padrino ecosystem? Well, Padrino and Sinatra are separate projects. And I, honestly, I've never worked directly on Padrino. I've read some of Padrino's documentation. I looked literally a little bit of the code, but I don't have very much experience with it. But Padrino sort of adds sort of like, a, I want to say, not like a Rails-like layer, but adds controllers to Sinatra, which aren't really Sinatra-like. Rode is actually, I think, more similar to Sinatra's routing in a sort of a nested level than Padrino is. Because Padrino, you're defining, you know, classes, and you have sort of separate routers. With Rode, basically, you're just defining the routes directly like you can in Sinatra, except that you can also define routes in a nested fashion, which Sinatra doesn't allow. So I really, I mean, I, I used Sinatra for many years, probably like seven years before I uh, started working on Rota. And really, Rota is basically aimed at being like sort of a nice nested Sinatra without a lot of the backwards compatibility issues that Sinatra has. Can you give an example of where nested routing is useful? Well, for example, let's say you have an album's database. So your paths start with, like, if you want paths related to an album, it might be, like, album slash, you know, some ID for the album slash, like, track list or slash update for updating it or whatever it is. So as soon as you take this, like, album's, like, as soon as you get the ID for the album, before you've finished routing the rest of the path, you can retrieve the album from the database, and then all routes underneath that branch of the tree can share that code which is sort of like a before filter in other web applications, but it's sort of built in. It's implicit. There's no indirection. It's basically right there in your routing tree. So it makes it much easier to read the code and understand what it's doing versus, you know, before filters who are looking all over your app, where is this defined? Especially if you use Rails with, like, controllers that inherit from each other, it's often confusing where things are happening. Um, This makes it much more direct, and you can exactly see... You know, you basically read the routing tree from top to bottom and see exactly where code is getting executed. There's no indirection in that case. That makes a lot of sense. The flip side of that I could see is that these uh, routing trees could get really long. Uh, do you have any features for like snipping some of it out into a module or something? Well, there's actually, um, because you can't basically have a block that breaks across multiple files in Ruby, there's a plugin called Multiroute, which basically takes your routing tree and you can, uh, by plugins, or by, sorry, by prefixes of the path, you can basically say, okay, all routes that start with albums do use this separate branch. So you basically, when you're defining your routing tree, you do like route and you give it a prefix. And then in your main app, you can just do r.multiroute. 
and that will dispatch to all of your routes, you know, basically your separate route prefixes, using a single regular expression to catch the route and then dispatches right to that. So in addition to being faster, it also allows you to way to break up your code into separate files, and you can use this in a nested fashion. So if you have a very large routing tree, you can have the top-level files, so you have the multi-route in the main app dispatched to all your, the main top-level prefixes, and those prefixes can then dispatch to sub-prefixes. So this allows for building apps of arbitrary complexity while still retaining the same model of basically using this routing tree. I could see this being used for something similar to what we see engines used for these days. So you could have like a blog app or set of routes that, you know, behave in a particular way and then you just load it in, so to speak. And so you could actually pass that around between different apps and then you just pass in the views and make sure that your data structures exist. Yeah, so basically you can do it that way. Also, if your blog is a separate rack application you can also just dispatch directly to that. I mean, RUM was originally designed more as a URL router than as a framework itself. It was originally designed for, like, taking prefixes and dispatching them to rack applications. And you can use Rota the same way. Um, so if you have a bunch of rack applications and you just sort of want to structure them and, you know, like, do handling, like, access control before you pass off to another different rack application, you can easily do that if you have separate rack applications. You can also build it all in the same application if you want to. Um, it's very flexible that way. So how do you dispatch from one rack app to another? Uh, the API calls just run. So you would do um, everything in Rota is based off the, the, the request. So the request instance in, in Rota has methods that operate as routing methods. Um, one of these methods is run. So you can like r.albums, and let's say you want that, that prefix handled by another rack application. You do like r.onalbums, and then inside that you do r.run and give it the, your rack app, and then it will dispatch everything under the albums branch to your rack app. Oh, nice. Does that mean you can use it in front of something like Rails? Yeah, you can, you can basically put this in front of Rails. There's actually a couple ways to integrate this into Rails. One, you could have this in front of Rails and then dispatch into Rails. You can also, there's also a middleware plugin for Rota, which operates as middleware. You could load it as middleware into your Rails app, and any route that your Rota app does not handle will then be dispatched to your Rails app. So this allows you to, like, let's say you want to speed up your Rails app, you can add it as middleware to your, add, add Rota with, as middleware to your Rails app, and then everything that's performance sensitive you can do in Rota, and you can pass the rest of the requests on Rails so that Rails is still being used for the less performance sensitive code. So you're saying that the routing tree really has a positive impact on performance? Yeah, the, Rota is actually one of the fastest uh, web frameworks for Ruby, and this is two parts to this. One is that it, the request overhead is kept extremely low um, compared to most other web frameworks. And internally, the way routing is handled is also very fast. So the benchmarking I've done, I've not found for any significant a- application of significant complexity a case where other approaches to routing are faster. So you've benchmarked this against Rails? Well, yeah. I mean, and Rails is hard because Rails has so much overhead for every request that even though um, the Rails router is actually very good, I mean, uh, Tenderlove uh, wrote it. It's extremely fast and good at what it does, but there's a ton of overhead in Rails. If you want the Rails router and to use a lighter web framework, there's actually a framework called NYNY that takes Rails router and uses it um, in a, like so more like a Sinatra-like application. And that's also that's actually the second fastest web framework um, that I benchmarked. But it still has, I think, more overhead than Rota has. Is is there a place where people can actually go see the benchmarks? 
Yeah, actually, I have a, a, a project on GitHub called R10K, and it's a sort of like a takeoff on the C10K problem. We have about 10,000 connections. The R10K problem is you have 10,000 nested routes in one application, and you benchmark it. So I have this. It actually benchmarks it with Cuba, with Sinatra, with NYNY, with Rails, and then the different with Roto with the different sort of different plugins loaded to see how the, uh, they perform differently. And in this, Roto ends up being fastest. If you go on the Roto website and you look at some of the presentations I've given at RubyConf and Mountain West RubyConf, there's some slides that show the output of R10K, the, the benchmark graphs, which show that Rota is the fastest with, you know, you know, doesn't matter if you're doing 10, 100, 1,000, or 10,000 routes, Rota ends up being the fastest. Even faster than Cuba? Because I know you modified Cuba to make Rota. Yeah, so Cuba, actually, there's actually another benchmark called BenchMicro, which is written by Luis Lavina, and it basically benchmarks all these micro frameworks with a single route. In the single route case, Cuba is actually slightly faster than Rota. But it's actually significantly slower if anytime you're doing any routing, actually, because Cuba is not really optimized internally. Um, one of the things it does, it's creating separate regular expressions for every branch of the tree while Rota caches those regular expressions. And regular expression generation in Ruby is actually quite slow. So this actually makes performance in Cuba, even though Cuba is like much faster than Sinatra, it's still significantly slower than Rota. You mentioned that you can integrate this into Rails, and I'm wondering, does that happen very often? Is that like a, a common use case, or do people just use it on its own? I'd say in, in most cases, people are using it on and on its own. I don't know anyone that's actually doing this in Rails. Um, if anyone is, please contact me and let me know. One of the limitations that that Rails has kind of hit up against is the fact that Rack was never really designed with streaming in mind. Um, and so it, it turns out to be very difficult uh, to do any kind of streaming. Rack really wants you to, to basically come up with your whole response and then feed that out. Is that an issue that Rhoda addresses at all, or is that kind of beyond the scope of what you're trying to do? No, certainly uh, Rhoda tries to address that in certain ways. Um, well, one case is the template streaming. So... In, in the Rack uh, spec, basically, you can return as the body of the application anything that responds to each. So in a lot of cases in frameworks, this is just like a, an array with one string inside of it, and that's basically the entire body. But you can have an enumerable, and like any enumerable, really, and as long as it yields strings when called with each, it basically operates um, efficiently. So there's two ways that Rota does this. One is it has a template streaming plugin. So you can stream templates using uh, transfer encoding chunked. So you don't have to prepare the entire response before yielding to the user. This allows you to basically like flush your the head part of your request before your entire request is finished generating so that the user can load like the assets necessary to display the page before the page is even finished rendering. And you can be retrieving objects from the database while the client is loading the assets related to the page, which makes the actual performance for the user in the browser significantly faster. The other part is streaming. Um, there's sort of two parts to streaming. One is like using things like event source. So there's a streaming plugin in Rota now that you can stream uh, things like doing event source type stuff. One thing that Rota doesn't ha have support for yet is WebSockets, and I'm currently working on adding support for that um, using Faye, the Faye WebSocket stuff. Also, I'm trying to get Real. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Real, but it's the celluloid web, web framework. I'm trying to get it to support that through Reels or WebSocket support, but that's not currently working yet. I'm curious to hear how you make decisions like that. Like when you say, you know, we're working on supporting WebSocket, how do you decide what to support? Or do you just kind of wait to hear people complain and then you respond to it? Or how do you decide your roadmap? 
I'd say currently the roadmap is kind of empty, <laughs> it, but WebSockets are something I want to support. The other thing I have sort of on the on the uh, sort of on, on the to do list is adding support for Opal. And a lot of the cases, the stuff I'm working on in Rhoda is not so much in Rhoda itself, but it's in the surrounding ecosystem. So, like, Rhoda's asset um, plugin is based on Tilt. So Tilt renders the templates for things like, you know, if you're using CoffeeScript with Tilt or if you're using SCSS in Tilt, um, the asset plugin basically relies on Tilt to handle the template rendering for the assets. Uh, I wanted to add support for Opal, which is a JavaScript, uh, sort of basically ports Ruby to JavaScript. So you can write Ruby code, and it's transpiled to JavaScript, and that JavaScript executes on the user's browser. When I first started using Opal, it didn't support that with Tilt. It sort of only supported sprockets. So I basically added support to Opal so that you could use Tilt to render Opal to basically use Ruby code to JavaScript. And that way, in the future, it'll be usable by Rhoda to um, basically use Ruby both for your front end and for your back end. So basically, you don't have to use you know JavaScript on the front end and then Ruby on the back end. You can use Ruby for both. And I think that's sort of where I want Ruby to go. Um, I, th- I think I talked about this uh, fairly recently on the change log. Um, but I think one of the problems with you know all these JavaScript frameworks coming out, where you know if you have to write your front end in JavaScript, like the idea is, well, it's why our back end in JavaScript, so there's the same language. But if you consider JavaScript just a runtime you can write the front end and the back end in the same language, in this case, Ruby. But if you're using things like Clojure, you could use Clojure and ClojureScript for the front end. And there's a whole bunch of languages now that they have a JavaScript sort of, they compile to JavaScript as well as compiling sort of natively. And I, I, I sort of want to support that with Rhoda so that you can use basically Rhoda in the front end and Rhoda in the back end. I, I love that you're, um, you're addressing some of your needs by improving some of these other projects. Yeah, I, and actually, um, I mentioned Opal, um, but I, I'm working on things uh, on Rack, on Tilt, on MIME types um, for the Mailer plugin. There's actually a whole bunch of the ecosystem where I'm sort of applying and you know pu- pushing out pull requests to the other projects and hopefully get them accepted, so that way I can make Rota better by integrating better with these other um, external uh, projects. That's fantastic. You've talked about how most of Rota is is about its plugins. So I'm I'll bet you have some insights into how to make a good plugin API. Um, have you learned anything in that department? Yeah, I mean, uh, Rota's plugin system is based almost exactly on SQL's plugin system. Um, and the SQL plugin system, I didn't actually write it. It was actually available in SQL before I took SQL over back in 2008. And I think it's an extremely well-designed plugin system where a plugin is basically just a module, and inside the module it has like a module called class methods if you want to add class methods, and a module called instance methods if you want to add instance methods. And then for SQL, there's a module called dataset methods, so you can add methods just to the dataset class. In Rhoda, that doesn't make sense. So the, the sort of options for modules inside the plugin are um, class methods and instance methods, but also request class methods and request instance methods and response class methods and response instance methods. So your plugins can basically... Each Rota class that you have creates a custom subclass of the request class and the response class specific to your Rota app class. So when you subclass Rota app, it also subclasses the uh, request and response classes. And that way, when you apply plugins, they apply the plugins only to that request class or that response class. And that way, you can custom um, basically modify any part of your request, your response, or your current scope, add methods, and you can always call super to get the default behavior. I guess... Part of what makes that approach work is that you have a, a pretty 
you've limited the number of objects that might need to be extended by a plugin. Is that yeah, a that, fair statement? I, that's certainly the case. I think that's my approach in general. I don't tend to have a whole bunch of different objects. I generally tend to stick mostly to, to the primitives and then only have objects for things that really need to be objects. Um, so in SQL, there's like the database, uh, there's the data set, there's the model. Those are like the three main objects that you deal with in SQL. In Rota, it's going to be sort of the, the scope, which is actually an instance of the Rota class that you're using. And then there's the request and the response. And there are other classes used, but they're there's not that many of them. In most cases, you're using just those objects in the primitives. That's a, actually kind of an interesting um, design tension where a lot of times we kind of shun having objects that have many, many methods, you know, a few objects with many, many methods. But it does seem like it's true that when you're trying to do a plug-in architecture, you know, as soon as you have lots of different objects, now you have to find a way to adjust or modify or subclass or something, lots of different type, lots of different classes in order to let the plugin advise any part of the system, right? Yeah, I mean, it, and some people would say this violates the single responsibility principle, and in some cases it does, but it makes the code much easier to understand. It's much easier to understand three objects than it is to understand, you know, a hundred different types of objects. So, and especially if you, one of my other my approaches um, is using primitives for a lot of things, which people also say that might be sort of an anti-pattern. But in my experience, I found it actually works very well. It keeps the code very simple because you know, basically all Ruby programmers know how strings work, they know how arrays work, they know how hashes work. If you have separate objects for each type of things where you could just use a more primitive type, it makes the code, I think, harder for newcomers to understand. I think it is much easier to understand code that basically has a few object types that you need to understand, but the rest of it is sort of primitives that you can just use. And if you find later that your primitives are not don't do what you need, you can always in Ruby subclass the primitives and add methods to them. So in SQL, originally the association reflections were just hashes, and eventually they became subclasses of hashes with basically added methods to them. So if you make objects for all those things before you really need them, I think you end up making your application or your library significantly more complex. It almost feels like maybe there are different forces at work for library code or framework code than there are for, say, domain code, where you might want more, more objects. I think I agree with that. I, I try to keep, especially libraries, should be kept as simple as possible um, because there, you don't know how, exactly how the library is going to be used all over the place. So applications, I think, should be treated sort of differently than libraries are treated, um, both in testing um, and in design. How would people go about writing and taking advantage of the plugin architecture in Rota? Do you have third-party groups or individuals who are contributing plugins as well? There's certainly a lot more of the internal plugins than I have linked as external plugins. So there's probably you know quite a few people that are working on external plugins. And then every time someone works on an external plugin, I try to get them to send me the link so I can include it in Rotor's documentation so that people are sort of know about not just the internal plugins, but the external plugins as well. And in both Rotor's and SQL's plugin architecture, it's designed so that it doesn't matter to the user if the plugin is internal or external. It's treated and loaded exactly the same way. Yeah, I just want to point out, when he says internal versus external, I'll put a link in the show notes to this, but if you go to the repository and you look in libroda plugins, there are a whole bunch of plugins that you can pull in that are just included with the library. Yeah, and one of the reasons I did that, sort of like I do with SQL, is that it's great to have a bunch of plugins that are inside the, the repository because then they're tested alongside the main libcode so that you can be sure that 
no part of any modifications you're doing to the library are going to break the plugin code. You have the internal plugins that are tested, again, alongside every time you test Rota, you're testing not just the internal, you know, the core of, the, of Rota, but you're testing all of the plugins that Rota uses as well. And this makes it so uh, you can change things and make sure, you know, and you don't want to change things that will break external plugins, but certainly you don't want to change anything where you're breaking internal plugins. So that way all the plugins you're, you're writing are tested alongside, and you can see if you make a change to the core. If it breaks in the internal plugins, it might break an external plugin, and maybe you want to do something different that's more backwards compatible. Now, speaking of plugins, one thing that I want to ask is, I've been playing with Rota for a little while, and it doesn't seem like there are any plugins that are turned on by default. You have to go and turn them on by default, or turn them on yourself. Uh, The thing that I'm wondering, though, is that Rails turns on a whole bunch of features for security. And it seems like, and this is something that Noah Gibbs actually brought up when we talked to him. So I'm wondering, is there some sort of uh, security uh, methodology that you should follow with Rota? I actually, I talk about this in the README that if you're designing a you know customer you know or a user facing you know browser based app, there's some you know headers you want to add, and I actually have that in the README for Rota about you know you can use what's called the default headers plugin. You can add some default headers and. Every application is different, but those are the ones I list are basically the common ones that most applications are going to want. However, if you're using, if you're designing like a JSON API, you don't want any of those. Those are for, you know, browser-based apps. If you're designing a JSON API, you're probably doing authentication via, you know, a token system or something else. And then maybe not, you know, not handling sessions. So session security is not important to you. And Rota, the core of it, doesn't depend on you doing it a certain way. It's basically designed to be flexible for any use. And then you, you load the plugins you want for specific use cases. So I want the core to remain very, very generic. So in being generic and trying to be flexible and kind of, you know, take care of whatever needs the developer has, do you feel like you're sacrificing anything? I don't feel that I'm sacrificing anything that way. Um, I'd say it might be a little bit more difficult for a new user that was sort of wasn't used to web security to use Rota. I mean, if you don't know about web security and you use Rails, it sort of handles things for you in a decent manner. Um, if you don't know about it and you don't read Rotor's documentation, you could end up with a web application that's not secure, which is certainly possible. But I mean, if you're not reading documentation, especially Rotor's documentation is not hugely large because Rotor itself is fairly small. I'd say you at least want to read the README to make sure that you sort of understand all the different parts. And I, I go over certain, there's a lot of things related to security, um, you know, cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery. And Rota has basically the ability to handle all those, but you sort of need to read the documentation, and usually it's just loading this one plugin or doing this one line of configuration to handle it. So one other thing that I want to talk about briefly is um, what apps, in your opinion, are good matches for Rota versus something like Rails or Sinatra or uh, some of the other frameworks out there? I'd say, like, if you have a Sinatra app, Rota, unless you're using some some sort of external Sinatra code that depends on Sinatra, Rota would be a good fit for pretty much anything that Sinatra does. I mean, it's sort of the design principle behind it. It's basically a faster nested version of Sinatra. So if you're using Sinatra for something, I say it's a good thing you could use Rota for. It could be faster. Hopefully, it could be easier to maintain. For Rails, I, I think the main advantage Rails has is the network effects. I mean, tons of developers know Rails. Tons of software works with Rails. So from a network perspective... Rails has a lot of advantages there that Rota does not have. So it really depends on how much external code that you would be using that would depend on the external framework. I mean, so if you're planning on using things like Devise and Omnioth and all, all the other things that might integrate better into Rails, Rails might be a better choice for that. But it really depends on how much external code you're using that already depends on another library. I think from a 
technical, you know, gra- you know, if you're designing from scratch and you're not planning on using external libraries, I'd say Rota would be a better choice for most applications, in my biased opinion. I have to say that the thing that I've been playing with it for the most for, I mean, I've, I've used it as far as having it load views and, and doing a kind of a traditional web app. But I've also been playing with it for APIs and, well, APIs both for, say, mobile apps as well as APIs for things like Angular and and kind of a a more involved front end. And I have to say that it's been really nice to be able to, because with APIs, a lot of it really does boil down to then where is the endpoint and what kind of request are you making to it? So it gets a lot of the extra stuff that Rails gives you out of the way because all you really care about is returning the information in the correct format and doing that in a way that makes sense and then, you know, solving the authentication problem, um, which may or may not be more automatic than what you get out of Rails. And so I've, I've really been enjoying it for that, and it works really nicely with both the front-end frameworks as well as with the other types of applications that are going to be using your APIs. Yeah, I've heard that a lot of people that that are using Rota are using it for APIs, um, probably because it's easy, but also because it's one of the fastest Ruby web frameworks. Um, So I don't actually do a lot of API stuff. Most of my stuff is browser-based apps. But most of the people I've heard that are using Rota are often using it um, for API type stuff. Yeah, for me, it was the, the way that it puts together the routing performance. I usually don't worry too much about until I have a problem. But yeah, it just really appealed to me because I can see exactly where the endpoints are, what kinds of requests need to come in, and how it's going to handle it because it's all right there. Great. One of the things you talk about in your um, in the documentation for Rota is application freezing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. So um, Rota actually one of the there's four main sort of goals with Rota. One of them is uh, reliability. Um, the other ones are simplicity, extensibility, and performance. But the reliability part comes in part from freezing uh, the app. So the idea is in production, you have a frozen application. And this freezes all of the internal data structures except for the thread safe caches. So that makes it basically eliminate all possible thread safety issues when using the framework, even when you're running on Ruby implementations that lack a global VM lock, like JRuby and Rubinius. A lot of other Ruby web applications that are thread safe are thread safe on MRI because they rely on things like accessing a hash or multiple threads being thread safe due to the global VM lock. With on JRuby and Rubinius, they're not thread safe. You can actually see this. I don't know if you've heard recently about Oga, which is an XML parser for Ruby, um, and it's basically designed to sort of replace Nokogiri because on Rubinius, Nokogiri doesn't work correctly because it relies on the global VM lock for handling thread safety issues. So if you're doing multiple thread work in uh, using Nokogiri on Rubinius, it crashes because it doesn't synchronize correctly. And Oga basically is a pure Ruby way that, that works correctly. So in any case, Rota is sort of designed so that thread safety is critical so that you can run this on JRuby and it will be extremely fast. And the one of the reasons it has to run, you know, it has to be completely thread safe is JRuby is concurrent. So you can't rely on, you know, the global VM lock to handle your thread synchronization. So it basically handles that for you. And it does this by freezing the uh, internal data structures so that if you attempted to use them in a thread unsafe manner, like let's say you try to write to them, you'll basically get an instant exception because they are frozen. So that's basically the, the approach to thread safety. So in testing and production, you uh, run... Uh, it frozen, and then in development, you can run with a reloader, so it's not frozen. You can still update things. 
To make this more concrete for listeners, can you give an example of the kind of thing that somebody might try to access and then find that it's frozen? Yeah, one of the things you often see if you've been on Stack Overflow uh, looking at things like Sinatra is that people will try to do something that should be run globally, like before, like, for example, SQL database setup. People will do that for every request that comes in and then figure out why am I leaking connections. You try to do something like that. Um, like, let's say you're loading a plugin, for example, but you're trying to load a plugin inside a request. It'll fail because when you freeze the application, you basically can't load any more plugins into it because it's frozen. That sort of thing where if you do it, you'll get an instant exception, and that way you'll know that what you're doing is a bad idea, and you can basically fix it. That makes a lot of sense. I agree. Hey, I'm curious. You said that you, um, you mostly do... Uh, browser-facing applications. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your preferred stack? I mean, obviously Rota, but like, what, what sort of templating plugins and stuff like that are you using? My typical stack will be uh, Rota for the web framework, Unicorn usually for the web server, unless I'm doing something streaming-related, um, which case I've been using Rainbows, um, uh, which is a Unicorn sort of variant that supports threaded applications because Unicorn is single um, single threaded basically. Um, for the template type stuff, usually I'm just using like eRubis, and uh, I usually use uh, SCSS or SAS is SCSS for the CSS type stuff. Currently, right now, I'm sort of writing. If I, I don't, you, you do very much JavaScript work, but usually when I do, it's just plain JavaScript. Um, I'm looking at it, if I do more JavaScript work, trying to push it onto Opal. That's one of the reasons I'm trying to get uh, Opal fully supported so that you can use Opal and Rota, and that way I can, instead of writing JavaScript, which I don't really like, <laughs> basically write what I would be writing in JavaScript in Ruby, basically to make it nicer and, and simpler. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, the main parts of what I use are basically are be Rota, SQL, Unicorn, uh, eRubis, SAS. There are probably some other plugins as well, but those, those, those would be the, the main gems that I'd be using in my default stack. Thanks. So you talked about some of the areas where um, Rota is a good fit, especially uh, in terms of APIs and the work that you do. Um, what are some areas that you'd want to avoid using Rota for? Currently, right now, it doesn't have good support for WebSockets. You can do WebSocket-type stuff in it. Um, like, for example, using Fay WebSocket, but there's nothing integrated, and that's one of the things I'm working on next, is that um, I want to be able to, you can use WebSockets nicely in Rota, because a lot of things these days are using WebSockets. Things where, again, Rota is not a good fit, mostly it just depends on the, the external gems you're using. Um, if you're trying to use a lot of external gems that rely on other web frameworks, you might have to, be able to sort of recreate those wheels in Rota or wait till there's Rota support for them. So, for cases where you do want to reuse a lot of the external stuff for like like device, for example, currently there's nothing like that for Rota. I do have sort of long-term plans to add sort of like an account management type plugin, but there's there's a lot of complexity there, and I, I want to get sort of more experience uh, in that area before I start working on that. I don't want to bring out something that's really half-baked before I think it's ready. How long have you been working on Rota? I started working on Rota in July of last year. Um, so I've been working on Rota for uh, probably about nine or ten months now. Besides WebSockets, are there other things on your roadmap that you're really excited about? Mostly getting uh, WebSockets working and then getting Opal working um, and then possibly taking Rota's routing tree approach and porting that via Opal to JavaScript. So that way in your browser, like when you're making a request, your request can return things and you can use a routing tree in your browser to determine what to do on the particular page. So basically, like, Rota in the front end and Rota in the back end basically makes it simpler for when you're designing your application. You can use a similar structure for both types of work, both the front end work in the uh, application 
and the back end work uh, and the handling there. That sounds pretty interesting. What are typical JavaScript frameworks using for that sort of routing today? I actually don't know all that much. I don't really do that much JavaScript heavy work. I really try to avoid JavaScript <laughs> if at all possible. Um, and it's not unfortunately too much possible these days, um, which is one, one of the reasons I'm looking at this, but I actually don't know. I, I would assume that um, hopefully maybe Charles would have a lot more experience in that area than I would. That's fair. We can be friends, by the way. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, not, a, not a fan of JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> can I switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about just like how you balance your work? Sure. So you're your lead developer on, on the SQL project, on the Rota project. Uh, you're also an OpenBSD developer, right? That's correct. I, I actually handle the entire, pretty much the entire Ruby o- ecosystem on OpenBSD. So this includes JRuby, um, all the versions of MRI, and we support everything from 187 on to 222. I also currently works, Rubinius currently works in OpenBSD, but it's an older version. And I'm actually going to OpenBSD hackathon in a couple of months, and I'm going to try to get Rubinius, sort of the updated version, running on OpenBSD, because it's, last time I tried it, it was quite a, a hard process to get working. So you've got that going on. We've already talked about how you, you're also pushing a lot of push, pull requests to other Ruby projects. And, and I can speak from personal experience um, about how responsive you are when somebody pipes up on IRC about some, something with, with SQL. So how do, you, how do you manage your time? How do you keep up with all this stuff? Mostly it's just focusing on that. In most cases, like questions coming via SQL are usually something if you just if you take some time like right then to do it, it doesn't take much time. So if you focus on the little things and you do them right away, you actually end up long term having more time to do things. So I work for the government right now, and it's actually it's a great place to work where I work. Um, I do end up having a significant amount of free time. So in the free time I have where I work, I basically can work on open source stuff because everything I work on, all my open source projects basically feed into the work I do at my job. So anytime I'm improving the open source code that I use or the open source code I have, I'm improving sort of what I do on the job. So, you know, it's not like there's a sort of fighting between, you know, the open source work I do and my job. It's basically sort of the, sort of the same thing. So anything I can do to improve the open source projects long term will help the work I'm doing for my job. So it's very easy to spend time helping improve, uh, you know, helping people use, you know, SQL and Rota because from dealing with people, I can see problems in SQL and Rota and I can fix them and I can make the entire project better. And if you don't deal with people directly on a regular basis, you often don't have a good idea about what is good and what is bad and how to fix that. So you deal with the little problems as they come up? Yeah, so basically, um, as soon as, you know, an issue is um, put on one of the projects I work on or a pull request is issued or people have a question on, on like, IRC, I try to address it as soon as possible. And there's a couple of reasons for that, mostly because I think addressing it soon is, is good in terms of, you know, seeing what's the problem right away. Also, it, it makes it very nice for contributors because a lot of projects are not that responsive. Some of them are, which is great, but a lot of Ruby projects are not that responsive. In terms of you might do a pull request, and if you're lucky, it might be a couple days, a couple weeks, if you get a response at all. So I, I try to sort of be the change I want to see. And if I post an issue in some other project, I really do want to get feedback very soon about is this good, is this a way to go, is this bad. And so since that's sort of the response that I want, I try to be the same way for people that use my projects and that when they have an issue, I try to respond as soon as I can. But don't you worry about getting distracted and kind of bogged down by the little things that you don't get to focus on the bigger stuff? 
currently there, at least in the time I've been doing it, and this has been like seven or eight years, that has not been a problem yet. I, I would say that, you know, if it got simply more popular and I had requests coming in all the time and the volume got so high that I couldn't handle it, I would probably need to change my approach. But so far, and I've been doing this for quite a while, I mean, six or you know, seven or eight years, it has not been a problem yet. In uh, in one of my open source talks, I tell people that it's great if you can figure out a way to get paid to do open source by basically using your open source work at work. Um, what advice do you have for other people who'd like to be in a similar situation where they're using their own tools in their work environment and getting paid to maintain them? Well, it, it's a great job if you can get it. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard. Um, the place where I started, they didn't have a programmer on staff when I started. I actually started uh, as an auditor, and I didn't really like auditing, and a position opened up doing help desk work um, in the IT shop, and the IT shop is very small. It's like three people. So I started doing that, and then I, I t- I'd taken programming in school and actually worked at a programming lab while I was in college, and they asked me at one point to take over the development of the website, which was at the time just a pure HTML site. So I started doing that, and I started doing PHP, um, then I started doing Python, then I started doing Ruby. And sort of after I started doing Ruby, I started using tons of open source tools and started working on my own open source tools. And basically from there, it just snowballed because since there wasn't sort of any existing programming infrastructure when I started, I basically had to write everything myself. So that's why sort of everything I use is something I wrote because when I started using it, there wasn't anything else there. So that's sort of why I get to work on all these libraries that I use at work is because well, when I started, there was nothing. So everything I use ended up, either I had, you know, it was already open source or I had to build it myself. I kind of want to ask you like how you pick a project because if you are in that mode, if you are into you know, creating tools or, or improving tools, there is a literally like infinite array of things where you could be like you know, using a tool and you're like, oh, I could do this better. You know? And you've clearly done that with Rhoda. But you got to draw the line somewhere. Like, how do you decide, I definitely want to devote some time to making this better versus, you know what, somebody else can make this better? I honestly try to avoid creating new projects if I can. I mean, Rota is the, the, actually the only time I've actually just forked an open source project basically to take it in a different direction. Um, with SQL, basically, I was sort of attributed patches to SQL, and the maintainer of SQL decided he did not, I think, want to do programming at all anymore. So he asked the people that had submitted patches to SQL, hey, do you want to take it over? And I was the person that ended up saying, yes, I want to take it over. So that was sort of, um, you know, basically just me taking over from him. It wasn't really a fork. It was just me taking over SQL. Road is the first time I've actually decided to fork another project to take it in a different direction. I actually do try to not, not fork other people's projects. I try not to create projects if I don't have to. Like, I don't want to write my own web server I actually didn't really want to write my own web framework. It's just that I was using Sinatra for many years, like probably seven or eight years. No, maybe probably about seven years. I was using Sinatra, and it was I was great. I, I had a lot of fun using Sinatra. And the one of the things I I found with Sinatra is I ended up with a duplicate code in lots of my routes because in in Sinatra all of your routes basically are independent of all your other routes. There's no nesting, so I was end up with duplicate code in all my routes. Like everything that started with artists would do something first. And there are ways to work around that in Sinatra. I mean, there weren't when I started using Sinatra, but they did, eventually did add the ability to do that in Sinatra. But it's sort of not built in. When I started using or started learning about Cuba and saw its approach to routing, it's like that approach to using a routing tree just would make what I'm doing at work um, so much easier. So I started using Cuba, and I'm like, this looks really good, and I want to switch to it. But there's all these things in Sinatra that I like better. So 
originally uh, the working name for Rota was Sanuba. So it was half Sinatra and half Cuba. And <laughs> that was my working name for it. Actually, if you look back in Rota's uh, the history, the commit history, there's a part where it's actually named Sanuba for, for quite a while before I decided on the name of Rota. And the right name Rota actually comes from a tree um, in a video game. Actually, we'll, we'll be able to talk about that when I do the picks. But yeah, in general, I try to avoid creating new projects if I don't have to. Usually, if I'm creating a new project, it's because I ran into something, I didn't see an existing way to do it, and there may, might be one I just don't know about, but usually it's because I didn't see an existing way to do that, so I had to write it myself. So this kind of segues back. One thing that I'm wondering about is, since every route is explicit in Rota, I'm wondering how you feel about kind of the magical routes that you see in Rails, like resource and that kind of stuff, you know, where it essentially creates a series of routes that then delegate to a controller that matches a certain API. Yeah, I don't really like that approach in in Rails. I I actually used Rails, I started using Rails back in 2004, um, late 2004. And I used Rails all the way up until 2014. So I actually had Rails applications that started in like 0.10 or 11 or something and were upgraded all the way to 4.1. But they're basically always like Rails 1-style applications. They, they never used the resource-type stuff that was in Rails. For what I did, I never found it an advantage to use that. So you can certainly build things like that in Rota. There's actually external plugins for Rota that give you things like that. But I, I don't use them because in what I, the code I write, I don't see the advantage to doing it that way. Cool. You talked about how you used... There are things about Sinatra that you like, but you didn't like the way they did routing... How do you decide whether to talk to the Sinatra people and say, do you want to reconsider how you do routing to do it this way versus just saying, I'm going to do my own thing? I mean, like I, I said, I originally talked to the Cuba developers and said, hey, there's these things about Cuba I'd like to change. And even if you don't change the, you know, you don't have to change Cuba itself. There's just, I want to do this in Cuba and Cuba has a plugin system, but I can't use the plugin system to do it the way I want to do it. And I like to make these changes to the plugin system to do it the way I want to do it. And they basically say, no, we don't want you to do that. We don't think that you should be able to change the default in Cuba. You shouldn't be able to override methods that Cuba defines to do something different. Where in SQL's plugin system, it's not like that. You can go into SQL model, the class itself, and define a method and call super to get the default implementation because the default implementation is in a module that SQL model includes. So everything is built on module inclusion. There's no like class methods itself. All the methods are in modules. So you can always call super to get the default application. And that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons I forked is that I could not do what I wanted to do in Cuba. I mean, I, I suppose I could have gone to Snatcher and say, hey, you could change your entire way you do routing to do it differently. And I'm actually hoping in Snatcher 2, maybe they do take a routing tree-like approach. But I, I didn't think it was right for someone to come in and say, hey, let's do it completely differently. I mean, it's, it would be a, a huge change to how Sinatra does things that you really, I mean, you could possibly do it in Sinatra 2, you know, if you want to break compatibility with Sinatra 1. Or I, I guess I just didn't feel right saying, okay, we should make these huge changes. Yeah, because that would end up breaking, like, the way you declare routes in Sinatra, right? Well, yes, because... It, Let's say you changed it so the default in Sinatra was not to do it um, or was to allow nested routes. You, at all points, you have to define, okay, is this route terminal or is it not terminal? Actually, mm-hmm. one of the issues I have with Cuba is that Cuba, there's no built-in way to define terminal routes. And by default in Sinatra, because every route is sort of independent, all routes are terminal. So in Rota, there's ways you can say this route is terminal, this route is not terminal. And 
that's something you'd have to introduce into Sinatra if Sinatra was to take a routing tree like approach. And I, I don't know. I, I guess it just takes more gumption than I had to tell mm-hmm. them, hey, we should do it this completely different way. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, do you feel like that um, feeling like that wasn't right to do? Is that because you feel like the way you did it isn't necessarily the right or the better way? It's just a different way. Like if you felt if you felt like the way you were doing it was fundamentally, I don't know if that's really a thing, but <laughs> fundamentally the better way to do it and would just make the doctor so much better. Would you feel more inclined to to make that a conversation? Maybe. I mean, I I do think that is this the the best way to do everything? No, there's no one. There's no silver bullet. There's no one best way to do everything. I think for a lot of things, especially the types of programs that or applications that I work on, I think the routing tree approach. Is great. It, it's, it makes things simple. It makes it very fast. It's very easy to extend and work with. But uh, there's certainly applications, you know, that it might not be a good fit for. And a lot of those applications, I might not even know it's a bad fit for those applications because I have not worked on those type of applications. So I can't say this is the best way to do everything, especially if you have like Sinatra app with like two routes. There's no real reason to use a routing tree. I mean, Rota might be faster, but that'd be the main advantage. It wouldn't be better. It'd just be faster. Right. And it's and faster meaning it's two milliseconds instead of six, right? Yeah, and that's that's basically. It. I mean, if you actually if you do benchmarking, it actually ends up being close to that in terms of it. it Road is about you know for like a hello world style application, Road is about three times faster than Sinatra, mm-hmm. two and a half mm-hmm. times faster. Yeah, not six milliseconds. Yeah, well, Which and, and that was that was kind of my point is that you know it's like your app is going to spend, you know, 150 milliseconds setting everything up. Well, I mean, not for a Hello World app, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, if you've got a very small application, then I, I think it was Donald Knuth that said that, that anybody that spends any amount of time measuring, getting actual metrics on their optimization learns very quickly that their intuitive guess on where their application is slow is wrong. And to be fair, this is me making an intuitive guess, so I'm probably wrong. But I would, I would assume that a very tight, small application with just like two or three routes on it, routing's not going to be your bottleneck, right? It's going to be somewhere in your app code. Yeah, and actually, routing is not a big bottleneck in most applications. One of the main advantages, I said, the main advantage to Rota's speed is not in the fast routing; it's in the very low per request overhead. Like, if you look at Sinatra's overhead for each request, it's a lot higher. It's not the routing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Sinatra, lots of routes are slow because basically Sinatra iterates through all the routes. Yeah. So it's basically O-N for the number of routes you have, whereas Roto would be like O-log-N because it uses a tree. Right. Um, sort of. I mean, it's not, not exact, but that's sort of the, the ballpark. I'm going to stop yeah. you for a second just for the folks that don't know what he's talking about with O-N and O-log-N. Do a quick search for big O notation, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Yep. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay, so in in general, um, Rota is fast more for the low overhead, low per request overhead, not for the faster routing. I mean, it is faster routing. If you have if you have, if you have a very large application, the routing is fast. But it, I don't think the routing is like much faster than like Rails router. Rails router uh, has some advantages. Let's say you had ten thousand routes all with a different prefix. If you just did that sort of by default in Rota, it would sort of be quite slow because Rota basically executes your routing tree directly. So basically, mm-hmm. you, you take the block you have, and it's sort of executing your route directly, and it's working your way down, sort of imperatively, through, through the route code. So if you have like 10,000 routes in one branch, it's going to go sort of iterate all through that in Ruby code. But one of the huge advantages of using Rota is that your routing is basically Ruby. So let's say you had something like that, you could like do like a case statement, and then like, let's say you branch off the first two letters of the route, and then instantly you switch, you know, you 
you, know, you eliminate or you reduce your the search space you're using by you know two orders of magnitude, for example. Oh, no, that's interesting. Okay, so you just described a case where you use a case statement to branch off of like the first couple of characters. Can you abuse Rhoda to the point where you could actually have a? Because you're talking about implementing a tree in Ruby code now to build up a single level of the tree. Could you actually use Rhoda to basically say this is a six-digit or six-character license plate, and it's a it's a random. It's all over the map, so I don't want to to build out, you know, 256, well, it's probably more like 56 characters, you know, you know, raised to the sixth power. So I want to bin these out, like in, you know, 256 by 256 by 256. Could you tell Rhoda to do that with like a three-node tree inside one level of the route? Oh, yeah. Basically, you're, it, Rhoda is instance-level routing. So basically, when a request comes in, Rhoda just yields to your route block. At that point, you can use anything you can do in Ruby to route. You can look up a database, and then depending on what the database returns, route completely differently based on what the database response is. It's basically instance-level routing. Anything you can do in Ruby, you can do, and that affects how you route codes. You have complete control. That's not done, I say, all that much, but you have the capability to do that whenever you want, which is why it is so different than all these other approaches to routing where basically you're handing your request to a router, and then the router just gives you, okay, call this method on this object, to do what you want. Um, mm-hmm. With Rhoda, you basically have complete control and you can do anything you want to do in Ruby to change how routing is done, not just how requests are handled, but how, how even to route the requests. Mm-hmm. You have complete control over because it's just Ruby code. That's cool. So there was a question you got asked at Mountain West RubyConf, and I wanted to give you a chance to revisit it, either for our listeners or to see if your answer has, has kind of enhanced a little bit. I remember you showing a chart of like 10,000 or 100,000 routes and, you know, showing the, the log end degradation versus like Sinatra's linear degradation. And somebody kind of raised their hand and said, what kind of application would have 10,000 different routes? And you, as I recall, you kind of shrugged and said, eh, they exist. I kind of want to ask that question again and press you for a little more like detail. Like what would be an example? It can be a dumb example. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, like, like an obvious thing, but is there, are there, Categories of apps that are going to have this breadth of routes on them? I'd say no. I mean, it really, the, the R10K project um, with 10,000 routes is unrealistic in terms of, I'd say, very unlikely that, that applications will get that large. I do think they exist. Trust me, mm-hmm. in the government, any bad idea you have, it probably <laughs> exists somewhere. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So, so but we- yeah. We can say that these exist and we're optimizing for a stupid use case, but this is a stupid legacy use case, which means we're getting paid to work on it. And we're not necessarily optimizing for that use case. It just says that, yes, this would work for that use case. That's not really our goal. It's not to make the 10,000 route case fast. Our goal yeah. is really to make the like you know, the 10 and the 100 route, you know, the typical app. That's the goal to make it fast. But the approach yeah. scales, whereas a lot of other approaches do not scale in the same way. Yeah. But as soon as you said like government projects, it reminded me of a lot of the Rails rescue work that I've done in the past where you get brought in to help somebody fix a really stupid mistake. And I actually now totally can visualize getting paid to speed up an app with 10,000 routes. I, I can totally <laughs> visualize it. Because because when you bring in a, a, a consultant to fix your project, the last thing you want to hear is that you need to redo your entire architecture. Or if they do tell you, and, and you know they're going to tell you, you, your entire architecture is wrong, and you're going to say, yeah, okay, but 
we're making a hundred thousand dollars a week on an iPhone app that we can't change. We can't complete, you know, it, it needs to know about these 10,000 routes. And so you do find yourself in the position of, yep, I've got to optimize for, for this use case. I've learned never to say that you're never going to see that because I, I got burned <laughs> by it. I just finished reading Bjorn Straustrup's C++ annotated guide and he demonstrates his C++ style by writing a string class. And I held forth long and loud that nobody ever is going to write a string class. And the very next job (laughs) I worked on was a tiny, we had to stay under like 28K for the downloadable, which means we could not require the standard library, which means we did not have a string class. And my very next job, I had to write a string class. So yeah, never say never. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Should we go ahead and do some picks? Sure. Sure. All right. Uh, Avdi, you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. I've got a couple of videos that I found pretty interesting. The first one, videos are both about the uh, the self language, which was a uh, language developed, I think, at Sun Microsystems, influenced a lot of, a lot of languages that followed it. But it's one of those things where if you look back at it, you realize that a whole lot of the stuff, the, the really innovative stuff that it did, kind of fell by the wayside. And only little bits of it were picked up. Uh, one of the movies is Self the Movie, uh, which is a short introduction to self and some of the things that make it neat uh, by Randy Smith. Uh, it's back from, from back in 1995. Another one is uh, Self and Self, Whys and Wherefores, which is a talk at Stanford by David Unger, uh, who worked on self and uh, or was one of the creators of self. And uh, both of them, very interesting, both of them show a lot of fascinating research that has, has influenced the stuff that has followed and some other stuff that maybe ought to influence us, but hasn't yet. And, uh, I think that's it for me. All right. Saran, what are your picks? Okay. Have you guys seen the video, April fool's video prank in math class? No. Ooh, no. Wonderful. It's amazing. Uh, it has 13 million views it is a great combination of math, nerdiness, and uh, funny. It's fun for the whole family. So that's my pick. You should definitely check it out. It's it's a riot. Awesome. Coraline, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I have a couple. One is programming related and one is not. Uh, the first one is called A Pattern Language for Microservices. This is a project that's attempting to create a full-on pattern language for microservice architectures and dives into such patterns as service per container, service per VM, multiple services per host, and uh, monolithic architectures, um, and so on, and is really a, a clean site and with good information and uh, provides a good overview of things you need to know and metaphors and paradigms you need to know as you go into build a microservice architecture. The second one is a comic book. I found that I use my iPad most often for reading, and often I'm reading comics. One of my favorite most recent titles is called Witches, created by Scott Snyder and drawn by a guy named Jock. It's a horror comic book series published by Image that started in October of last year. The series follows the Rook family, in particular their daughter Sailor. The family ends up moving to a new town to start, af- start over after an incident between Sailor and a particularly nasty bully from her school. But the place that they move to has super- secret supernatural traditions that play into their lives and into their story. I want to make sure that you know it's not a book for kids. It can get a, be a little violent, so be warned. And it's available on Comixology, so you can read it on all of your mobile devices. And I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Cool. David, do you have some picks for us? I do. I've been away for a while, and you would think I would have a whole bunch. But I just have two. 
Uh, I am working on a hot sauce pick, but I don't have that ready yet. So I have two picks. One is crazy awesome and one is stupid awesome. But by crazy awesome, I mean very extremely awesome. And by stupid awesome, I mean awesome and funny and really, really stupid. So uh, we'll start with the crazy awesome one. I have a Garmin Vivo Smart. I broke my Fitbit zip about two months ago and got a Garmin Vivo Smart, and now I genuinely cannot understand why Fitbit is even in business anymore. Garmin has been in the prosumer market for wearables and for like health technology, for like like heart rate monitors, biking monitors, cameras, and that sort of thing. And now they're moving down into consumer market, and so they are producing items that are at the same price points as a lot of the Fitbit uh, wearables, but they're just so much better that the quality is nicer. They, they, they're more ergonomic. They feel better and they just do a lot more. The Vivo Smart is about the same. It's about $150. It's the same price point basically as the Fitbit Charge, uh, which is, so it's, it's a, it's a watch that you wear on your wrist and it's got an OLED display under a rubber surface. So it looks like a black rubber bracelet until you tip it towards your face and then it turns on and lights up and it's, it's got the same thing as the Fitbit charge. It's got a clock, steps, you know, how many calories, your distance, et cetera. But it will also pick up text messages from your phone and display them on your wrist and you can scroll through them on this teeny, teeny, tiny screen, which is amazing. But the two things that I would buy the Fit or the, I would buy the Garmin Vivo Smart just for either one of these two features. The first one is the auto goal feature. And what this is, is it just checks, checks in on you. And if you don't make your goal, it lowers your goal for the next day. And if you just crush your goal, it raises your goal the next day. My Fitbit Zip, it just said 10,000 steps or go home. And I had it for three years. Now, I'm, I'm going to reveal a little bit about my health that's a little, maybe a little vulnerable and a little embarrassing. But I am not a healthy person. I am very overweight. And I am very, very sedentary. And so I had a Fitbit Zip for about three years. And I think I got 10,000 steps maybe once in those three years. I'm, I'm very much a, not a healthy person. And the auto goal, the first thing I did was I said, I am very sedentary. And it said, okay, buddy, 5,000 steps. All you got to do, come on, 5,000 steps. And then, you know, I went like 1,200 steps that day. And my Garmin Vivo Smart said, okay, I'm just going to get used to disappointment. And, and it lowered the goal to like 40. It just took like 300 steps and said, come on, try for 46. You can do it. And I didn't make it. And so in the, the next day, it said 4,300. It kept coming down. And interestingly, I kept going up because I wanted – this thing was willing to meet me halfway. So I was willing to try and meet it halfway instead of just – you know, the Fitbit zip was just clipped to my belt and I just forgot about it. In fact, I stopped checking in on it. And what this thing does is like the, like the wearables, it, it buzzes. And if you use that to do a little party dance when you meet your goal or when you get up and move around and you do what it says when, when you're supposed to, you can actually hack your brain, totally Pavlovian – but if you weaponize Pavlovian conditioning on yourself, it's freaking awesome, and it totally works. And so Autogol was the first thing. The second thing, and again, I would buy it just for this feature, is what's called the Move Bar. And this is based on the science uh, of some studies that found that if you sit sedentary for like two hours, your metabolism goes into sleep mode. It just assumes you're just laying around, you're sleeping, I'm just going to shut down. And your rest mass intake of calories goes down. And so what this thing does is it goes, okay, two hours is too much. So every hour, it turns out that all you need is like two minutes of activity to keep your metabolism from, from going to sleep. So every hour that I've been sitting still, my wrist buzzes. And I look down and it says MOVE in capital letters with an exclamation mark. And 
I do. I, I, because I'm trying to hack my brain, I say, okay, I'm going to be healthy. And so I get up and I walk out the front door and I walk down to the end of the street and I walk back and halfway down, my wrist buzzes. And I go, yay, I'm being healthy. I'm not healthy, but I'm being so much more healthy than I was a month ago that like my knees are feeling better. I've dropped 10 more pounds. Like I broke through the dieting plateau. It's absolutely fantastic. The combination of auto goal and the move bar combined have me now where I'm consistently getting over 5,000 steps a day, which is more than I've ever done. And I genuinely notice in the afternoon that I am more awake and I feel warmer. Like I can genuinely feel that my metabolism is actually ticking over at a higher rate of speed because I'm not freezing to death all the time. I'm actually generating heat within my body. So Garmin VivoSmart, I'm absolutely in love with them. They come in two sizes, large and small. And my wife has the small and I have the large because I'm bigger and she's smaller. So that's my crazy awesome pick. My stupid awesome pick, just very quickly, bad lip reading on YouTube. They oh, no. did <laughs> – oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> they did the Avengers and their take on the Avengers was to do redneck adventures. And so it's, you know, cousin dating and, you know, you ate that and it made you sick and – uh, if you watch it, there you will know exactly why I find it incredibly funny because you all know my sense of humor. It's one of Thor's lines halfway through, and uh, you'll know it when you hear it. And, uh, yeah, I laughed until I, I, I just couldn't see straight. So if you want to hear the, Aven- the Avengers talking like rednecks, Redneck Avengers by Bad Lip Reading. And those are my picks. Very cool. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first pick is I've been – listening to kind of the backlog on my podcasts. And uh, one of the podcasts I picked up was Saran's podcast, Code Newbie. And uh, I just listened to the episode that she did with Amy Knight, who incidentally is on JavaScript Jabber. But it was really inspiring, and so I really want to pick that. I've also been listening to This Is Your Life podcast by Michael Hyatt, and I've super been enjoying that one too. So I'm going to pick both of those. And then I'm also going to pick cleaning off your desk. I got about 50% of the way done, but it's just been so nice. I actually cleared off my standing desk and have been using it off and on. You know, kind of the same thing that Dave's talking about with, you know, just getting up and and not being sitting sedentary forever uh, during the day. And so, yeah, so those are my picks. And, yeah, that's what I've got. Jeremy, what are your picks? So the name Rhoda comes from the Rhoda trees, which appear in the E's video game series and help the main characters accomplish their goals. So that's E spelled Y-S. The E's is a fairly niche video game series outside of Japan. It's sort of an adventure action RPG game series known foremost for having really amazing music, in addition to being quite fun to play. Anyway, if you're looking for a new game to play, check it out on Steam. If you have a PlayStation Portable or PlayStation Vita, there are also a few E's games released for those systems as well. So my first pick is going to be the Ease video game series. My second pick is a Ruby library I just discovered last Friday, which is MinJS. And MinJS actually just started a few weeks ago, but it's a pure Ruby JavaScript minimizer. So the issue with the common JavaScript minimizers like YUI compressor, closure compiler, and uglifier is that they all require either a Java or JavaScript runtime. And I certainly prefer not to have to depend on those runtimes being available, now, currently, MinJS is pretty slow, but the results are fairly good, and it works, unlike uh, previous pure Ruby approaches that I've seen. So I did have to, part, had to patch one part of it that wasn't working related to Octal Escapes, but that pull request was just merge of the weekend. So my second pick is MinJS. And my third pick is a movie I watched just last night named Camp. And I'm not really a very emotional person, but I found this movie very moving. It's about a troubled child and his experience at a summer camp. It's a very predictable plot. But the acting is really good. 
and it's based on a bunch of stories from a real-life summer camp. It's available on Netflix Instant, and uh, that's my third pick, the movie Camp from uh, 2013. There's actually a different one from 2003, but I'm talking about the one from 2013. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got. If people want to follow you or see what you're working on, what are the best ways to do that, Jeremy? All right, so I'm, I'm on GitHub as Jeremy Evans, and I'm on Twitter as Jeremy Evans Zero. Um, those are basically probably the easiest ways to reach me. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.